Welcome to Source of Uncertainty, a book club podcast for you. I'm Robert Standifer. And I'm Kyle Swisher. And we have a great show. This is episode 16. Yeah, thanks for uh, coming back, everyone. Sweet 16, like a big party. <laughs> um, you know, it's been a party recently. Yes. Is that is that Facebook group forum? It's popping off. It is it is popping off as as uh, the kids say. I think um, there is a gentleman by the name of um, Ricardo Sanchez, who <laughs> and Grant Richter um... and, and Grant Richter. Yeah, Morty does not make an appearance. Just uh, <laughs> Ricardo and yeah. So yeah, uh, this guy, we'll call him Rick for short. He um he and Grant Richter are having some really great discussions in in the Bukla users group Facebook community page, and there's like there's stuff that that he posted that those guys have been talking about I've never seen before some of those panel designs, mm-hmm. and um, you know talking about the old modules and stuff and finding oh this is a picture Don took you know and I have a copy of it and posting that it's been pretty crazy what did you think about all that stuff. I mean, it's <laughs> it's amazing, and I mean, I feel like I spend so much time, you know, mining the depths of the internet for any kind of you know bookless stuff I can find, and uh, it's all just popping up in my feed <laughs> right now. Yeah. So it's like every morning there's some cool nugget that comes through, and um, and yeah, it's been it's been a lot of fun. So. I suggest if you're not on that, I mean, you know, Facebook is awful, but um, it's the only thing I do on there other than chat with you. That is true. And what most people may not know about you, Kyle, is that you were like the Buchla version of Nicolas Cage in National Treasure. <laughs> so you'll say, <laughs> Kyle will send me a picture of a, of a Buchla panel, you know, of a module. He's like, check this out. And I'm looking at it and the knobs and banana jacks and maybe a tiny jacks here or there. And he's like, look at this four pixel square, you know, ultra <laughs> zoom, <laughs> macro no, zoomed. I send you this like weird type of uh, this glasses with these multicolored lenses that you put on there. And <laughs> so he's like this zoomed in image and then a link to a website that I, I wonder if is on the dark web because <laughs> it's like practically need a special browser to go look at it. And I, I'm like, and then you're. Look on the other side of the module and the pattern of the of the circuits make that like holy moly, man! Are we going to kidnap the president here? <laughs> What's going on? Um, <laughs> having a a nine year old in COVID and Disney Plus uh, um, had us revisit those movies uh, re- recently. I love them. Yeah, they're great. Huge fan. They have so much re- rewatch value. Yeah. So you heard the honorary. Uh, Nicholas Cage. I'll um, take it. What's his name in the movie? I just spaced. It's great. Like, uh, yeah, I know. Well, we'll have to look yeah. that up and then we'll edit <laughs> it back in later. Yeah, he's a really cool guy. His name is Jonathan Franklin and he's <laughs> <laughs> place all these. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. The, the Daniel Miller. Uh, um, <laughs> yeah, the warm, warm leatherette. Warm leatherette. <laughs> all over again they tried to tried to make warm leather red on the bukla and that did not work well um <laughs> it was like man couldn't, dude, couldn't get that portamento right yeah it was exactly it was the it was like this the bottom and the bottom note would go out of tune 
as I went up to the the top <laughs> note of, of that. And I was like, screw this. I'll go to my <laughs> my Roland SH 101 and just do it there. It's much faster and easier. <laughs> Speaking of awesome music, Kyle, you have some cool stuff to tell us about. Yeah, I feel like it, it's been a long time since we've kind of done a rundown of of new things that have come out. I don't know. I feel like I think we did that six or seven months ago. Um, but I feel like in the last month or two, there's been a, a lot of good new Buchla releases. So I just want to kind of shout a few out so that our listeners uh, can go... Yeah, take a look. Um, so, so yeah, actually, one thing we, we could talk about is uh, uh, Todd Barton's involvement with the uh, Buchla Now cassette, uh, which came out earlier this month. And it was a compilation um, that we first started to hear about, um, I think it was with um, when was, Steve H was yeah. on. Yeah, Steve told us about it. Yeah, and kind of mention all the people who are on there, and it's it's an amazing lineup. There's you know Jonathan Fatusi, Todd of course, Caitlin Aurelia Smith, um, uh, Suzanne Chiani, and um, some others. And so uh, so yeah, that came out. Um, I get I did get a, a chance to hear it. It's what's cool is um, well, cool and maybe unfortunate for some <laughs> for some um, is that it's a limited release and it's not done digitally it's it was just a cassette so i think there are 300 and they're sold out so yeah i I hope you got one um but yeah maybe we can you know cross our fingers and uh see if uh they re-release it at all at some point you know Um, back in the 90s it was uh quite a thing to get copies of cassette tapes so like the only way to get the b-sides from some cure album was to know somebody who had the cassette and I wonder if this Buchla Now <laughs> cassette will start yeah. this whole whole new generation of duping the, uh, <laughs> I hope not because there are copyrights involved, but <laughs> might be the only, although there are only probably 300 cassette decks left in the world. That's right. So they, yeah. They'll all play on those. <laughs> My wife has like, uh, has like six of them. Yeah, she hoards them. That's why yeah. Suzanne made a song for her because she was like. <laughs> yeah, segue. Um, (laughs) yeah. So speaking of Suzanne, um, she just had some music, uh, re-released that I think was paired with a documentary that she scored, um, uh, many years ago, but it's a bit of a mix. Uh, it's called music for Denali and, um, and yeah, there's Buchla in there and it's also mixed with piano. So you kind of get both sides of, um, of yeah, her musicality, um, and yeah, it's 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 good. It doesn't um, well, actually with this and her track on the uh, Buchla Now cassette. Um, I feel like so much that I've heard. I guess other than Flower, um, the Flowers of Evil, um, basically with like her her new live sets and the 1975 stuff. That's all based off of the her. Uh, four sequences um both this music and or all this music that i just mentioned isn't so um yeah so get some new sounds out of her it's pretty i I like it i like music for denali i thought it was really classic you know when we interviewed her we talked about seven waves you know and her piano music and the new age stuff that she did a long long time ago and this kind of bridges 
the two mm-hmm. things a bit. And she's such yeah. a great pianist too. Just a yeah. really delicate play. It's a, it's a, it's a great album. Yeah. Um, so yeah, moving on from there. Um, uh, we actually had a, a listener reach out, um, letting us know his name is, uh, Rene G. Uh, I think it's Basio. Um, and he has an album coming out this Friday, which is October 2nd. Um, and he's a, uh, I think he works on film and television scores and he's got a two eight C, um, that he's been using for this album. And so, yeah, it's pretty, pretty aggressive, um, cool stuff. Like I, I, you know, it's like I don't, don't want to like compare somebody, <laughs> somebody else, but kind of in maybe in the vein of like um, some of like the um, Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross um, type of scoring, like from uh, the Watchmen and stuff. It's it's a uh, pretty gnarly. So go check that out. Um, we also got new music from uh, Jonathan Fatusi, which is amazing. Um, I've probably listened to his album Five Steps that he did at uh, EMS like 400 times. So, <laughs> yeah. so it's a, uh, it's, I mean, and he's put out my, a bunch of other stuff since then. Um, but this is kind of a bit different. I think it's, it's a mix. I think he's primarily using his easel, and he ha- also has a uh, EMS uh, synthy. Yep. And um, and you know he's his like kind of his percussive stuff is so good, and that's so much of what Five Steps was. Um, you know, just kind of throwing in sixteenth um, note like triplets everywhere and, and stuff like. Um, <laughs> And he he kind of moves away from that a bit. It's a bit of a, a change, um, but yeah, really good. Um, and also, I should mention these are all on their Bandcamp pages. So search their name. I also have this in the show notes as well, so you can get links to stuff there. Um, and then speaking of EMS, um, uh, there's an album called um, EMS Hallucinations that was just put out by Brett Naki. And he was on uh, Tim Held's Podular Modcast earlier this summer. So I think I had first heard of him. He, uh, Brett also put out an album on the Make Noise record label recently. And I um, think I saw an interview with him there too. But he went to EMS, I think, last year and had a residency and collected a whole bunch of sounds. And, and from what I remember i think he yeah then spent months and months kind of compiling them all together and it's really amazing stuff like it's so layered i just don't i can't wrap my mind around like compiling this crazy pyramid of sounds like how did that all fit together there's like 400 things going on yeah it's wild and it sounds cool (laughs) instead of like you know um or I'm like, I, it'd be a nightmare if I tried to do that. So um, I don't know. I'd like to try and maybe talk to him about that sometime. So maybe. That would be really cool because he overlays or I guess stacks up all these different timbres that somehow 
meld together and then separate. It's really amazing. And that that's yeah. That's really hard to do in a sublime way. Yeah. Um, did he post a bunch of stuff pictures of that on Instagram or was maybe that another EMS um person, <laughs> I, you know? it's hard to know. I think the on the back side cuz it's an actual LP that he put out to this and I think there's a good picture of him in this set or the system. Um yeah, it could have been him. That up. Yeah. Um and then actually I was just on the old Instagram and saw that our old buddy Kevin Ricks, um, which was a early early artist artist spotlight. I think you did, Robert. Yeah. I loved it. Um, yeah, for his his Lollikins books uh one and two, and it sounds like book three is coming out this Friday, and it's all done on his 200E system. Yeah, looking forward to that because his system's changed a lot since we talked to him, you know, just about a year ago. And um, it's uh, it, it's so neat to hear how, you know, look, looking forward to hearing how he has evolved in terms of his use and the changes in his modules. And it's pretty yeah. cool. It's neat to see. And, you know, we see that with a lot of these artists that, that have become our friends and um which is amazing and so I'm, I'm excited about that plus i really loved the the first you know the first two lollicans and i still I, I didn't lose those in my hard drive crash kyle i was able to save <laughs> to save those Good. yeah i know they're special because he sent them to me to do the artist spotlight thing and i i treasure them <laughs> <laughs> um yeah i'll be curious to see because like that second um, the second of the two books had a lot of kind of the more epic yeah. film score aspect yeah. where he's bringing in, you know, more orchestra accompaniment and stuff. So we'll see if, yeah. I wonder if he'll, if he kept going with that mode. I mean, I know that's what he does for work. Um, so, yeah, it'd be funny if we, I, I should do an, an artist spotlight for book three and be just like, man, this is terrible. I hate it. <laughs> oh God, I, I just can't listen anymore. Let me turn it off. <laughs> just so, yeah. kidding, Kevin. You know, you know, I'm your bud. I love it. <laughs> um. So yeah, looking forward to that for Friday. And then, yeah. Speaking of buds putting out music, we have our guest for the show today, Johnny Woods. Yeah. And uh, and his album Pavilions, which came out, um, yeah, at the end of August. So, yeah. so that's out now. Check that out. It's amazing. We're going to get into more of it in just a, a few minutes. Beautiful cover too on that album. Just I, w- I wish I got an LP because it's just gorgeous. Yeah, um, yeah. The probably I think he has both uh, cassettes and LPs for this. So go check out his Bandcamp and. Support him and all these artists. Um, so yeah, we're gonna talk to Johnny in just a few. Um, oh, Robert, yep. I I got a new module. I forgot. Uh, what? Uh, what? What? How? How could you wait until the show to tell me you got a new module? I. It just, I just it, man. It, it was very recent. I <laughs> It better have been today, or my feelings will be hurt. <laughs> I just sent you a photo. Oh no! Of it, I'm scared to look. Oh hey, <gasps> well it has a big old fat Rogan puck on it, so I'm not sure I approve. 
That's no puck. <laughs> Wait, are you pointing at the one under the 207 or? Yep. Oh, man. Do you wow. know what that is, Robert? Well, it's super blurry. Did you use like an iPhone 4 to Do take the picture? Do you know what that is? No, I don't. I can't tell what. It, oh, oh wait a minute! It's a it's a two thirty. Is that really a two? No. It's Did hell just freeze over? It's a two thirty. Well, I'm confused because it, it <laughs> has the the blue jacks are on the top, not not the red ones like on mine. So it threw me off for a second. I can't believe it. Did you borrow that, or did somebody give it to you? <laughs> yeah, that's a uh, that's a uh, triple envelope follower. That's amazing. Um, I can't believe you got one of those. Our uh, our buddy Andrew, uh, uh, yeah, he yeah he ended up having two, and uh, <laughs> wow. and gave one to me. That's amazing. Well, you know, I always considered you a fast follower. You know, I got my two thirty first. So <laughs> <laughs> so now we can do. So I got to tell everybody. I I was doing a two thirty e featured module segment for this episode, and. It was right before I was leaving to go out of town and I got, I was using my guitar and my theremin and like a cassette deck and I had all this stuff going and I got some kind of ground ground problem that um, caused the, the audio to freeze, which is not related to, you know, the Buchla preset management or anything like that. I just had some kind of problem. And so I was like, well, I can't do the I can't do the segment because I'm leaving for Portland in an hour. And I haven't and I don't have the recording. So Kyle was like, "Well, you have failed, but uh, we'll let it go this one time." So you so, know what? I came in there and I tried to work with the two thirty. You did. Yep. So that's what people it, are. That's what people are going to hear right now. Wow, that's what I get for going out of town. You go, you get a new module. You go record a secret segment and don't tell me about it. <laughs> I can't wait. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, watch me, uh, watch or listen to me struggle with the uh, two thirty a bit, and um, and then we'll get to talking with Johnny. Okay, so I'm here, and I'm doing something I I never really planned to do, which is uh, take a look at the triple envelope follower model 230. Um, yeah, as uh, we probably discussed, um, this has been the kind of running joke module of the show between uh or basically between robert and i uh well well before the show even started um and so i had yeah kind of never saw this getting into my system so i've never really thought much about how to use it so that's kind of what i'm going to do is figure out how I might use this thing. So um, kind of the way I, I normally compose with the Buchla, um, I kind of just do, I try and build up a big patch and, um, you know, just do one take of my performance, all voices going, no multi-tracking, and that's kind of it. Call it done. 
Um, but you know, after doing that for a while, there's parts of me, it's like, well, you know, maybe because I'm trying to stretch all my voices to do different, you know, um, aspects of this patch that I'm making, like maybe I want to get really intricate with, uh, my patching and just make like a super weird sound for some sort of percussion thing that might take up half my modules and I wouldn't have much left to do later on, you know, trying to build out the patch or maybe not make it full as full as I'd want to with my setup that I have now. Um, so, you know, multi-tracking could be cool for that, but I've always just been like, well, how do I, how do I do that? Cause I don't know the MIDI, <laughs> nor do I have anything that interfaces with the MIDI. Um, but I was like, well, maybe, because the uh, the 230, it has uh, pulse outputs for its envelope follower. So, uh, so yeah, you plug your audio in, and uh, depending on kind of where you have the sensitivity and uh, where the um, pulse response switch is, either sustained or transient, um, it's like, well, I should be able to derive pulses from from somewhere like, you know, maybe just a steady clock out of the DAW. Um, you know, I don't, uh, I don't really interface anything else with the, the Buchler. I don't play any other instruments along with it. It's funny. I, uh, uh, Daniel Araya from, uh, EMS who was on the show earlier this year, we were talking about this module. He's like, I love this module. It's my favorite module. I have like two, uh, I tell everybody to get it. And I'm just like, what? Like, I don't, how do you, what what do you do and he's like well it's the techno module like yeah you use it you know you have your drum machine or whatever other piece of kit um that's kind of maybe supplying the rhythm and then you're able to drive your sequences and everything else um with the uh with the 230 so yeah i guess to start this off you know the this really sexy patch is um a audio output from uh, my DAW, uh, which is just on my uh, secondary laptop. And so yeah, I have this audio cable going into the signal input and a pulse coming out from that going into the MARF. And that's going to, or a complex oscillator and uh, through the low pass gate onto the mixer. So if I press the space bar uh, on my computer, I now have a tempo at 120 beats per second. Um, so yeah, I could, you know, set my tempo. I can change that around. Let's maybe let's half this. Let's go to 60. Much much slower. Um, so Mike, yeah, I'm thinking this could be a good way to keep everything at the same tempo and kind of build on on tracks. Um, might be helpful to, um, you know, if I collaborate with somebody and, you know, they, we have a BPM, either if I'm starting the track or they're sending me tracks, I can set this up. So, so yeah, I can just, let's go to 260 now. That was at 60 beats per second. Now we're at 260. I think the fastest this goes is 400. Oh wait, that's 40. There's 400. 
So yeah, in thinking about this further, if I'm gonna use this, like maybe if I have multiple sequences or if I wanna divide down this tempo, um, you know, I could use the MARF with its program pulse outputs um, to you know, start dividing this, um, uh, this tempo and kind of use it to drive other things elsewhere in the system. Um, so yeah, I, I can see how this could be useful. Okay, I'm uh, I'm struggling a bit. I was like, I don't know, should I plug in my guitar and try and, I don't know, do something with that? But I just wasn't feeling that. Um, I don't know, I just haven't integrated guitar much with, with this stuff. Um, not really my angle. But then I was like, well, I could... You know, sometimes I, I want some sort of secondary uh, touch control, um, even just for like, I don't know, just to trigger something. It Because um, my main touch controller is the 218 on the music easel, but you know, a lot of time that is taken up by playing melodies and stuff like that. Uh, so I do have this um, old little microphone um, that, uh, that I was like, oh, you know, if I throw it in there, I can maybe kind of use it, uh, <laughs> kind of like a contact mic and just, it's, it's a beat up crappy thing anyway. So, um, so yeah, if I try like, uh, you know, tapping it, So that is, uh, yeah, me tapping on this microphone. Um, so that's, uh, actually I have it going into the 207's preamplifier first, um, just because it's a quarter inch jack and then I could kind of swap it over to a, a tiny jack to go into the 230. Um, and then yeah, the envelope out is going into the 292 and uh, 258 oscillator saw wave is running through that in low pass mode so so I could that's a fairly short envelope could, you know bump that up a bit cool maybe not really i don't know do i see myself using that much probably not um so yeah i'm gonna keep moving on okay i'm uh, back with what i think is maybe my last patch here with the uh 230 for now um and you guys, I, uh, I, I'm, uh, I'm kind of into it. Um, so this idea stems back to my trip to EMS uh, earlier this year. And uh, as I've probably talked about before on this show, I fell in love with the uh, time domain processor, the 288V, which is the um, Mark Verbos uh, resurrected delay unit. And... Um, that thing, yeah, it's it's 
it's wild. Go take a look at it if you haven't seen it before. Um, but it had a uh, this kind of like self-looping function, kind of sampler thing. Um, that was fun to play with, and I ended up just kind of using that and coming up with cool rhythms because it has eight individual tap outs that you can kind of mix in and out each each delete delay tap um and i didn't think about it at the time but uh so yeah i would kind of like manually if i was into this rhythm i'd try and like i'd reach for the either the 245 sequencer or the marf and kind of you know <laughs> patch the um the kind of rate of it or try and uh, tempo match with uh, the sequence that I was using. Um, and, you know, like I kind of mentioned before, I never think about the uh, uh, 230 and, um, and realize like, oh crap, I could have taken one of the tap outs because it's got um, uh, nine, eight or nine individual tap outs at the uh, banana, or sorry, <laughs> uh, tiny jack, uh, tap outs at the top of that delay module and it's like oh I could have taken one of those out put it in the 230 and got a pulse from that and then I could have you know clocked stuff accurately so um, while I don't have the 288 I have the uh, 277 signal delay unit and that has um, individual tap outs at the top and so I decided to yeah, set up a uh, set up my three sequencers, so both sides of the MARF and also the five-step uh, sequencer on the music easel, and yeah, kind of get a signal going into the delay unit and use those tap outs, which are there's a quarter time, half time, three quarter time, and full time um, delay taps. Um, run those the quarter, half, and three quarter into the 230 and based off of the initial um, signal I put into the input mixer, it's going to, you know, put out those individual taps and those will become pulses that I can then drive my sequencers with. So, um, so this is the, um, the set tempo. This is coming, this is kind of getting triggered uh, by the pulsar on the easel, uh, going into a very short uh, envelope. And yeah, that's what that sounds like. But um, and then I have the quarter tap um, going into this next channel. And so it's going, uh, so yeah, taking the quarter tap out, going into the, I guess like section A of the 230 um, and running that pulse into, see that one is so this is the easel sequencer uh, I've then got the half tap out which has kind of got like a bass thing going that's going to one section of the MARF um, I believe it's a seven step sequence and then the three quarter tap out I'll turn the other ones off so you can hear it. it's a little bit quieter And that's going to the other side of the MARF, which I think is like a, I think it's maybe steps, let's see, maybe like eight through 16 or something like that. Um, 
and all together. So they're all kind of chugging along in time with each other, but all offset by these uh, tap outs. Um, but what's cool is, uh, so I just have the main kind of this, you know, sound triggering it going into section A of the signal input mixer on the 277. Um, and I have nothing going into the other points on the um, signal input mixer. So if I do take one of these um, individual tap outs, I can plug it in and I can start getting feedback. So, it's, um, so now this feedback that I've introduced is going to, um, yeah, start affecting how many pulses, just as if we were using this for an actual delay about like how many, um, you know, times it would tap around. So, so I've taken the quarter tap out, or sorry, half tap out, um, and I'm gonna start to bring it up. So I'm kind of like doubling the speed in a way because I've introduced that next tap. I'll bring it back out. And I'll bring it back in. So that's kind of cool. Uh, let's try going to just the quarter tap out, so the shorter one. I'm then going to take the full tap out and I'll put it into the uh, section C of the mixer. So I pulled that quarter tap out. I'm just going to hear what the full tap out sounds like. It's kind of doubling up because, you know, it's basically um, triggering length of the entire delay so around the, the where the main signal comes in so you can kind of hear these little flurries if I I've had the um, the decay times turned down um, to about 0.1 for all of these but now I've opened them up a little bit and I'm gonna bring the quarter tap back in So yeah, kind of cool to get different rhythms with this. I'll go to maybe like the half out and the quarter tap out. What I've also found, um, which is kind of interesting, is and just kind of playing around with this makes me you know get my head wrapped around this module uh, a little bit more um, is it's sensitive to um, the frequency of that uh, pitch um, that I'm kind of triggering everything off of so that's a pretty high tick um, but on the preset voltage for this oscillator or I'm going into, yeah, from the preset voltage of the music easel, I'm going into the pitch of this and I can lower that. And we'll hear, I'll calm this one down a little bit. 
Um, if I go really low, um, and we have this in the transient mode, um, there's, I don't know, I'm guessing that, like, there's, there's so much more change in the, in the amplitude that it kind of freaks it out at this point. So if I turn up the envelopes amount, they kind of chill out. And then sensitivity also is interactive with this. I have these all these down to maybe like, I don't know, 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock or so on most of the knobs. But if I bring, that's yeah, getting a lot louder. do such a low note, I'll kind of go higher now. So you can hear that one still kind of stuttering, that higher note. If I go to our highest um, bass pitch, I guess I have the, yeah, the sensitivity is up quite a bit on that, so it's fluttering a little bit less. There's cool stuff I can do with this. Like I can just open up the low pass gate of this kind of bass note. If I turn down the sensitivity a bit. of the main signal kind of drowns out the uh, delay taps a bit, and yeah, they all kind of slow down a bit, which is kind of neat. If I bring down the sensitivity a bit, yeah, they all kind of slow down. You can also turn the sustain. I have had everything in transient. If I put the uh, sustain mode on, uh, I believe what this does is um, uh, this is the sustain mode for the pulse response. And I think the threshold, I've read two different things now, is either six or seven volts. Um, so if you have the sensitivity pretty low, um, it's not going to fire off a pulse, um, but I'll turn up uh, sensitivity on one. You hear that bass note kind of get louder, but it doesn't go anywhere. I might get maybe two o'clock on the dial. There we go. Once I got to third, um, um, about three o'clock on the dial, um, that's upping the sensitivity enough that I think it's reaching that six or seven volt threshold, and then it's triggering so I'll kind of do the so now I've done that on another channel so it's kind of fun um, you kind of have all these jammable parameters um, 
with you know the actual uh, delay unit and the decay and sensitivity that it kind of um, yeah keeps things interesting for a long time. Switch the transient um, or sustain modes. So yeah, I guess as uh, much uh, smack talk I've, I've done about this module, um, I do see the merit. It is, uh, it is pretty dang useful. All right, today on the show, we've got Johnny Woods and his companion, Covington. Johnny, how's it going? It's going pretty well. How are you guys? Good, good. Welcome. Thank you. Good. So, um, so I guess to start off, why don't you, I guess, give us a, a bit of background about yourself and how you got into music. Oh, that's a big one. Well, yeah, we'll start with an easy one. <laughs> yeah, let's start with a 30-year history of, uh, um, I guess, the, the, the short version is um, I was uh, kind of always into music. So, I mean, I started playing piano at age five, I suppose. And then um, as I got older, you know, drifted away from that and got more interested in playing guitar and um, just always played music. And I think it was around probably 1993 or 94. I was, I was 13 at that time. And uh, I got my first four track cassette recorder. And that was the, that was the thing that just kind of sent me on my way. And uh, shortly after that, I got my mm -hmm. first analog synthesizer and that was it. And the last uh, 26 years or so, um, I've just been exploring that basically. Um, and it never, yeah, I just, I found that when I was 14 and I was like, this is the thing, this is for me. And I never stopped. I guess mm -hmm. that's the short version. There's a lot of, I skipped a lot. <laughs> but... <laughs> <laughs> we'll take like, yeah, I got a synthesizer and, and I was making music. <laughs> yeah. It's not easy. <laughs> uh, yeah. And I've just gotten better and better synthesizers over the last uh, couple decades. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny how much, I, I feel like I hear that story a lot. Like when people have gotten the four track, I never had that experience um, of, you know, baby, basically being able to layer and kind of make your own music on your own in this world before personal computers could kind of were cheap and you could do that at home. So, yeah, it's one of the benefits of being an old guy. Is <laughs> <laughs> that tape? Yeah. Um, what was the first synth synthesizer? The first synthesizer was a Roland SH3A, um, which, Ooh. so this was 1993 three or 94, somewhere around there. So uh, I traded, a, I had a Boss Octave pedal and I traded that for a Roland SH-3A <laughs> and I loved it so much. I went back to the same guy and traded like a Ibanez flanger pedal for his Moog MG1. Um, so those were like oh, my, <laughs> those were like my two axes. This was like marginally right before uh, analog since got hot again, you know, you hear those stories of people from the yeah. late, late eighties and early nineties who like traded like a bag of potatoes for an emu modular, but so it wasn't quite yeah. that, that level, but, um, <laughs> 
it was still like a lot of people just had them laying around. Um, and uh, I think it was the, like, I still remember my first hour with the Roland SH3A and I had like that and a delay pedal. And um, it was just the coolest experience of my life, you know? Um, and I'm sure pretty much anyone who's ever, anyone who deals in synthesizers has that, that foundational moment, you know, where you just go, oh, this is where all those mm-hmm. sounds come from. Now I get it. Yeah, you reach for that filter knob and you're like, oh, there it is. That's totally. what I've been hearing for the past. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. <laughs> 30 years in sci-fi movies, yeah. Yep. Uh, man, those are, those are some like insane acquisitions of like, you know, an Ibanez pedal. I mean, those things like... <laughs> yeah, it wasn't even like a good, good Ibanez pedal. It wasn't like one of the vintage yeah. <laughs> ones. It was like one of the plastic, black plastic ones with like, that was kind of oh, curvy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Hmm. It was that. So Man. it's a good deal. I, I, I guess it, it makes kind of sense though, because the the SH three looked old in the nineties when you know the big the sleek black digital synths were the norm, totally. you know, with floppy drives and stuff. And so that looked like seventies, you know, antiquated history. It was disco. Yep. And I, it's <laughs> like I remember that because you, you could find. I mean, we've all talked about this. Those of us who were sentient in the 90s unlike maybe kyle who was a little boy but (laughs) (laughs) there was just stuff was all over the place but it was so it was you know outdated and almost gauche like who would want a single oscillator synthesizer with knobs and and faders yeah when you could have digital readout with floppy disk storage of your you know like i saw dead milkman on stage and that dude's Flop, you know, switching out floppies between songs. I thought, man, that is so cool. Hell yeah. Hell, Hell yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I never, never thought it was cool to see somebody switching out floppy disks, but <laughs> Ed Milkman, they, they made it look cool. Totally. He gives some, like, some, some English on it, like really kind of like whip it out and like flare it in the air and then like yeah. grab another one. Yeah. <laughs> English. That's right. He used to- <laughs> <laughs> well that was He's you know balancing it on one finger <laughs> yeah those days were so uh interesting because there wasn't like a right solution like now it's just everybody uses computers or like maybe an mpc but um back then like i played in a band and we used vhs tapes for our backing tracks because that was to us the best sounding and most convenient option so we would every song switch out a VHS tape to play the backing tracks for us. Interesting. Yeah. Whoa. Hmm. So, yeah. okay. So what kind of music were you into and what were you making uh, at the time in that setup? I was, uh, well, I was in a synth pop band in high school, um, which was not, <laughs> not well received. It was, uh, me and, you know, I had a drum machine and some synthesizers. And then there was a guy who sang, uh, in a very humorous manner over it. Um, and it was very Devo inspired. Um, but my, my big love in that time was kind of split between, shoegaze which i'm still obsessed with that was that was kind of my thing um and the, you know mm-hmm. different strains of like psychedelic british music um and i also really loved contemporary classical music like chronos quartet and steve reich and um those sorts of things and punk rock music and you know it was, it was pretty pretty wide but i think i always gravitated to music that mm-hmm. was sonically really interesting 
Um, so I loved Sonic Youth and the experimentation they were doing. And eventually, you know, mm-hmm. later in the 90s, I found, discovered like Aphex Twin and Autechre and all of that stuff and became kind of obsessed with AMP. Do you remember AMP, Robert? Yep. Yeah. Sure do. So that was like, because this was before the internet. So every Sunday night, at midnight, it was like, all right, what's the new music, you know? So I would <laughs> find it um, yeah. on AMP. And, and that was where I think pretty much everybody in our generation got exposed to interesting electronic music. Yeah, for sure. And then you could later go to the Internet Underground Music Archive, Iuma, yeah. <laughs> and find something that an MP3, well, it wasn't even MP3s back then, but some uh, audio and like AIFF or something that somebody had uploaded from their Amiga. Totally. Yeah. (laughs) Do you you remember in the kind of thinking about Altecker and Aphex Twin, there was like this new, I don't want to call it a new wave, but this new generation of electronic music that came out in the nineties, I think because the digital synths were so, um, so readily available, but you know, you had like crystal method and fat boy slim, which are two completely different ends of the spectrum there. Yeah. But there was like this huge explosion of DJ music, like DJ Shadow, Fatboy Slim, that type, and then electronic music like Crystal Method, and then this new era of industrial, you know, stabbing westward and gravity kills. And it was like, man, everybody's making electronic music now. Oh, it's totally. genres. Yeah. And, and that was, it was like, like, it happened overnight. Yeah. It happened really suddenly. And I, I mean, that was my uh, adolescence was uh, going to raves, taking drugs maybe, and listening to electronic music extremely <laughs> loud. And yeah. it, the one really interesting thing about that time is you would go to like, raves were just kind of the thing to do. you know. And I was living in Philadelphia and uh, there was a very big scene there. And it was very like a kind of music agnostic. So you would, you know, one weekend it would be a Gabber rave and the next one it would be like tech house and it would be all these different genres of music, but they were all like the synthesizer was the thing in pretty much all of them. So no matter what night it was, I knew I was going to go there, have fun, dance and listen to like really loud, slow filter sweeps, you know, and, and (laughs) just like great sound systems blasting, like, just synthesis the sound of synthesizers um and that was just such a cool period um and I, I guess it'll probably never come back for a variety of reasons but uh i'm really i'm grateful that i got to be a part of that when it happened i, I think you know you're old if you remember hearing two unlimited y'all ready for this before it was a cliche yeah yeah <laughs> for <laughs> you're sure in a rave and they're like y'all ready for this you're like yeah this yes. is this is gonna be and then now you hear it like at a, at a cheerleading competition. <laughs> yes, <laughs> totally. But that rave music was, that, that's another angle too, because that was kind of underground in suburbia. You know, like the, yeah. if you're the kid that has the rave till dawn tape and you're taking it around and letting everybody hear it, because you, you know, that wasn't on MTV, that wasn't on the radio. Yeah. If you didn't live close to a big city like Philly or Dallas or you know, um, Chicago, you just weren't going to experience that. Totally. And so I think that's a really interesting influence. Also, it's pretty fascinating. Yeah. I also think I'm ready for this. Yeah. There's something (laughs) cool about how anonymous so much of it was too. Um, You know, back then DJs weren't like they are now for one thing. And also they're playing a ton of music that, 
you have no idea what it is and you're never going to be able to find out, you know, there's no, like they're not publishing their playlist the next day. You can't just uh, use whatever that app is. So, so much of it was just music there to serve a purpose. And then it just kind of disappears from your consciousness forever. Yeah. That's so cool. Just like, yeah. Being in that moment of time and knowing that it's fleeting, but yeah, <laughs> trying to soak the most out of it that you can. Totally. Now, how does that lead you to kind of where you are now? Do you still, I mean, that's so much influence, you know, we're talking about an entire decade of that was transformative for music, but how does that kind of influence you now when you think about the type of music that you want to compose and the sounds you want to hear? Because you're, the days of the filter suite might be somewhat over, right? Yes, for me. Uh, well, yeah. there's a couple. There's for you, a couple. I mean. But uh, yeah, um, I don't know. I think that there's... There's a, well, one thing when I was working on this last album, there was a, I had a bunch of post-it notes that would kind of cycle through that I'd keep on the, on the bookla to remind me of different things to pay attention to. Um, and one of the post-its that was there pretty much the entire album was a post-it that just said plastic man on it. Um, I had gone back. I hadn't listened to plastic man since, you know, back in the, in the late nineties, um, and I went back right before, or I guess as I was starting the album and for whatever reason and started listening to it again. And there was one really important thing that I think he, he is a total master of, which is he knows how much attention the audience can focus at a, a single time. Um, and I think that a lot of times when I was improvising on the bukla, I was doing all these things that would get really complicated and really like every part's kind of doing its own thing. And I, wrote that note to myself to remind me like the audience can really focus on one thing changing at a time, you know? And I think when you listen to plastic man and a lot of that, uh, EDM music from that, or not EDM, I shouldn't say that a lot of the electronic music from that era, they had a really good understanding of that. Like one thing is always changing very slowly. And then maybe another thing starts to change, but they never kind of overwhelm you with just all these sort of things changing at the same time. Um, so I think that's one thing, even though obviously my music is very far from rave music, I think uh, when I'm doing well, I'm very aware of what the audience is able to pay attention to at a given moment in time. So I guess to to back up, um, because yeah, I do want to get into pavilions. Um, from that, uh, from the 90s, like when did you then get into, uh, how did Bukla find its way into your setup? <laughs> Uh, well, there's, I have two, I had two like encounters with Bukla. Um, the first was when I was in college. So this would be around 1998. Um, I was lucky enough to go to a college that had a Bukla 100 system. Um, amongst a, a few other things, they had a, a bunch of EMLs and Moogs. Um, and I, I was not in the music program, so I wasn't allowed to touch them. But I had some friends who would sneak me in sometimes. Uh, and so the first mm -hmm. modular synth I ever had an experience with was the Bukla 100. And I just remember, wow. I mean, even to this day, I'm like, that shit is crazy. Like, what, what is this? Because I was I was pretty comfortable with like standard analog synths. But when you sit in front of a Bukla 100, you're mm -hmm. like, where's all the stuff I know? <laughs> like, there's none of it's here. Um, and so yeah. grapp grappling with that was like a really cool experience for me. Um, and I was able to sneak into the lab enough times to 
to get somewhat comfortable with it and realize like this is something I want to explore more. So that was 1998, 99, and um, I saved up my money because I these dope fur systems had just started coming out. Um, and so mm-hmm. uh, the Buchla 200E had also just come out, but it was like, do I want two oscillators of this or a whole system of that? So I went for the dope fur and, um, <laughs> and I, I got that and immediately was like, oh, this isn't the thing I want, but it was still cool. Um, and so I had that for a yeah. while. Um, and that was the, the first modular synth I owned. Um, and then uh, about eight or nine af- years after that, uh, I was fortunate enough to meet Charles Cohen. And that was kind of my second introduction or reintroduction to Buchla. Um, and uh, I got to know him pretty well. And living in Philly, is, he was very accessible and very out there. I think everybody yeah. everybody who lived in Philly at that time knew Charles. And um, uh, he was very generous and gracious and so I, I ended up spending a lot of time with him and getting to play the music easel and um that was kind of like i think that was the moment where i was like well so, as soon as i can get something like this this is definitely what i'm going to get and then it it took about another 10 yeah. years before i could afford it but uh then eventually i got the 200e <laughs> in 2017 thanks to uh bitcoin <laughs> 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 nice it paid off it, it did i uh i got two bitcoins when they were not that much money and then um sold them in december 2017 which turned out to be a good move but uh you didn't you didn't use them to buy pizza like some people did when they came <laughs> yeah, out. exactly <laughs> <laughs> no i did it i did it well i guess i did it well it's amazing you got to play that original easel yeah that he'd been using forever did you ever see his other setup too i did yeah his, he had uh, a 200 system he oh. had a 200 system um i, I don't want to out the person but I'm, I'm friends with the current owner of his original easel and his 200 system um and i'm planning to take a field trip soon uh-huh. to go to go check them out um they're both in need of some work, but nice. they both do exist. But uh, yeah, when I knew Charles, the 200 was always just in the closet. Um, and it was it was mm. kind of a, it was a funny setup because you walk into his apartment and he's got his table with the music easel and all the effects units that he would use to perform with. And then like to the side of that was another table that was just for fixing the bukla. And it was like just a whole like electronic setup with, you know, tools and all the bits and pieces he needed. And I, I think probably like probably 60% of the time the Buchla was on the repair table <laughs> and the rest of the time <laughs> it was getting used for performance. Um, but that was actually a good lesson I learned from him was that it, if you're going to get into, if you're going to get deep into modular sense, it's good to know how to fix everything you have. And it's good to have some basic understanding of electronics. And I took that to heart from him. And uh, that was when I started learning more about DIY and um, basic repairs and things of that sort. Nice. Yeah. I should probably take that to heart too. Yeah. <laughs> Cause yeah, that is a, it is scary. I mean, I guess there's, there's more support now potentially totally um, mm-hmm. to get help to get stuff fixed. But, but yeah, that's, I, I envy that. 
I don't think I can crack open my 252E and make it. <laughs> no, <laughs> no. I know. It's kind of the scary thing about the E, the 200E system, is it's, uh, it's you open them up and they're terrifying looking. But <laughs> yeah. That's interesting about Charles Cohen. Um, I kind of envy you in a way because he was so groundbreaking, you know, and a master at his instrument. Yeah. And he did this really great side project called the Ghost Riders. Yeah. Um, yeah. With a pianist whose name just escapes me for a moment. But, and that, there's a, um, one of their albums, I'm just totally spaced on the name of it too, has Word Dreaming in the title. Anyway, I can listen to that on repeat because there's this really amazing and difficult to achieve equivalence between the drones and the piano playing and part of the classical Western style. And then Charles doing easel stuff, you know, with randomization and multiple pitch classes and, you know, atonality and micro tunings. And they just go together so perfectly in it. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like um, ambient in that you can just have it on and, and it's in the background, but Charles Cohen's stuff brings it back to the foreground. So you're kind of dropping in and out of active listening just love it and i i think it's so hard to do that kind of music it really that work it really is and the you know the thing that doesn't get talked about enough with charles is that he was just a genius musician like he he had incredible sense of pitch and he was he was like a jazz musician like with a saxophone he could sit in with pretty much anybody with his music easel and do something that musically was going to be appropriate um and you know, I was I was lucky to see him perform like probably at least a hundred times. It was always wow. different, and it was always fantastic. You know, and, and he would just show up. I mean, people in Philly know this, and you would be at like some basement experimental show with like a couple of college dudes with pedals, and then the last act would just be Charles Cohen. Like he was just there at almost <laughs> every noise experimental or synth related show. Um, and he would play for anybody, you know? Um, and, uh, he was just a real performer. Um, and I don't think you see that too often with synthesizers, especially, you know, I can't think offhand outside of people who are just now starting to resurface like Suzanne Ciani and, you know, are, are, are doing it now that there's more of an audience for it. But, um, at that time, you know, I'd never seen anybody with a synthesizer, able to do the kind of things that he was able to do just show up and improv and play a great set for 20 minutes you know the whole audience would just be wrapped and Mm -hmm. it's tough to do with a single synthesizer yeah yeah i mean i guess i yeah the only i think todd is there yes times that i've i've seen him he he can just bring it (laughs) every every time um i wonder when he first got the easel and really kind of like i mean i like i i hope to like be able to think back it's like okay i've dedicated like 10 years to this instrument and really learning it and be able to adapt to situations like that yeah but i'm definitely not there (laughs) at the moment (laughs) oh well yeah i mean you know maybe you are (laughs) who knows (laughs) yeah yeah I'm just like I'm like well I'm like it might come in time but I know I just feel like there it's it's the time that's important 
And, yes, yeah. totally. Well, you should just start showing up places, Kyle, with your easel. I mean, it is yeah. a suitcase after all. Just take it wherever. You would walk into the health and beauty aids at Walmart and just sort of set it up. Yeah, I thought about it. It's like it's not it's not a bad like busking module, you know, yeah. or like you know setup. Like you just need a little speaker and yeah, something exactly. to power it. And, yeah, totally. And just so, go at it. <laughs> um, so what what was the system like that you got in 2017 and has it mainly remained the same it it uh i think this is probably common it changed a lot and then it settled and now it hasn't changed in quite mm -hmm. some time and i i don't think will change anytime soon um i kind of figured it out you know i cycled through a lot of different things um, <laughs> yeah and uh, most most of the things, I think. Um, but I, I made the decision pretty early on that like 24U, right? Is that what I have? No, 18U, yeah, is what I'm going to stay at, and that's going to mm -hmm. be it. So let's figure that out. Um, and I've swapped some things in and out, but now I feel like I, I could see changing the 225E because I don't, I don't want to ever use it, literally. <laughs> but um, it seemed like a good idea at the time. Other than that, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty stoked with how it is. Um, but it did go through a lot of changes. I had the, you know, originally I just had all the E stuff. Um, and then I found there were some, you know, like all the, all the Bukla E stuff. And I found some shortcomings with the way that worked. So I switched in some non-e modules uh I, I got all the studio h stuff except for the con control signal router um but uh i love those and uh mm -hmm. i think they're probably the most indispensable modules in my setup right now um so there was a lot of flipping and mm -hmm. but now i feel like i'm pretty much settled i wonder what that's like <laughs> yeah being settled yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um okay wait so you you have the you have the uh the 255 yes, I do. Oh. hold on one second there's a little panic going on um so 255 <laughs> right yeah so i guess i was just wondering because it's i think it was kind of a short-lived module um uh, in the Buchla and associates days and so Interesting, like in your 18U, how that's like that's got a spot. So I'm kind of just curious, um, yeah, how it earned its spot. I was shocked to hear that it's not one of the more popular modules, to be honest. I think it has a spot in like a 8U. Hold on, Gov. But I think it's it's <laughs> for the space. I don't, I don't know if there's another module that is as space uh, useful as that is. Um, I use it for, for tons of things. Um, it's a, you can use it as an eight channel envelope generator, which, um, you know, who doesn't need more envelopes? Um, you can use it as a control voltage processor, obviously. Um, and just to do regular slew, you can also just use it as a attenuator. Um, if you need, you know, um, you can use it without the, the slopes at all being involved. Um, so I think it's a great module. And I was, it, it was when I, I got an opportunity to get one. Um, it was like a no-brainer for me. I didn't even know it existed. And then it was I was offered to me in a trade, and I was like, oh, hell yeah, I want that. Give me that. <laughs> that sounds perfect. <laughs> um, so I, I'm a little shocked to hear that it wasn't more popular, 
which I think I learned on your podcast um, when when Doug was on. Yeah, yeah, he did. And it is pretty cool to think. Um, I mean, I guess it sounds like the other one. It, you weren't able to do the put pulses into it to get those um, envelopes. Yeah, out. exactly. But um, but yeah, I was just curious about about that because I, I I'm running the same kind of. I mean, I have the easel and then an 18U, and it's always just like, ooh, you really gotta earn your keep. Yeah, <laughs> to, to you know, take up that space. Right. Yeah, that's what I say to all my modules. I'm like, what have you done today? Yeah. to earn your place in this world. What have you done for me lately? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, um, right, so let's get into Pavilion. So you, actually, you put out an album, I believe it's called T- Terraformed? Yes, um, correct. Earlier this year? Mm-hmm. And that was kind of a collection of, of stuff, right? Yeah, that was, um, that was sort of why I, w- I was working on Pavilions. And I just had this stack of like, 40 tracks that were semi-finished or um, reused in video projects or just other things lying around. And I was kind of like, I should probably do something with these before I put out this next album. Because if I don't put them out now, like I'm never going to want to put them out in the future. Um, so that was just me kind of saying, mm-hmm. hey, there's these tracks that are pretty cool. So maybe I'll <laughs> do something with them. Um, <laughs> And uh, so those were made over the course of like probably a year to two years. Um, and that was largely before I really was comfortable with the Bukla. Um, so most of that was Oberheim Expander, mm. the Wired 300, some Surge maybe. Um, or I think I was already, I think I already got rid of the Surge. So I don't think there's much Surge on there. Um, but yeah, that was, that was mostly that stuff. And uh mm-hmm. It was nice to have it done. Yeah. And then Pavilions is kind of more focused. Like you set out to like, I'm going to make this album now. Yes. That was, uh, the, the idea was very um, uh, clear from the beginning, like what, what that record was going to be and how I was going to approach it. And the, you know, a big part of the idea was I wanted to do like a Bukla performance album um, that also felt, kind of composed. Mm-hmm. So um, the the impetus for that was, uh, you know, there's uh, this guy, Evan, who I believe, Ky- I'm sure, I know Kyle knows. I don't know if Robert knows Evan. Um, he goes by the name <laughs> Blue Tech uh, for making music. And <laughs> he, I had been on a compilation record and then he had asked me to make a full album. Um, so that was kind of the, the reason behind it. And I knew from the beginning that it was going to be on vinyl and to me, that's like a, a really cool and big thing, obviously. So I wanted to make something that would sound really cool on vinyl. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and and just the immediate thought I had was, I want to make a Buchla record that doesn't sound like any other Buchla record, um, because there's a certain variety in there, but most of the Buchla records kind of sound the same, or or they fall into like mm-hmm. a few families and categories, you know. Um, yeah, so that's controversial, but I completely I, yes, agree. Yes, <laughs> totally. How did you address that then well, to make yours different? Yeah, I, I think. I mean, there were there were a couple things. Like in the beginning, I was like, "I'm going to do like no bongos, 
no FM, you know, or very, very little subtle FM, mm-hmm. no like droney stuff. Um, no, uh, you know, I, and I, I think part of it is like, there's, I guess one of the things I would classify about like the what a lot of people are doing with Bukla now is it's there's like a repeating sequence, like so often with five steps or sometimes more. Um, and the tones just kind of evolve, you know? Um, mm-hmm. Or it falls in this very abstract, kind of more set of design uh, camp of things. And what, the thing I was most interested in and, and something that I think the book was actually really well suited for is creating really complex tonal music. It has these really complex sequencers and you can get extremely precise with it. Um, but I very rarely heard people using that for, you know, traditional tonal music, which is something that I, I love. Um, so I wanted to make something where everything was rigorously in tune <laughs> and, uh, you know, kind of modal and nice and pleasant to listen to. Uh, partially just because I'm a contrarian, but also <laughs> partially because that's just what I like to listen to, you know? Yeah. When listening to the album, like what first came, or, you know, to me is just like, man, this sounds very like optimistic and propulsive <laughs> to where I guess, uh, where, yeah, everything like you're saying, you're trying to make um, something that moved and then, you know, maybe with fewer harsh or sound designy elements and stuff made it feeling more optimistic somehow. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's a great album. Thank you so much. Yeah. I just, I think another thing I felt was like, there's all these great dark Bukla and modular albums, you know, like, um, like Cortini's albums and uh, Katerina Barbieri. And like, I feel like they got that down. <laughs> I don't, I don't need to do that. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. other people are doing that great. Um but yeah, I yeah. like I like optimistic, uh, happy music, <laughs> for better or worse. Well, you were in a pop band. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, you know, so you know, there, there's something about that we were talking about the um, kind of the tradition. I, I don't want to say traditional, but the sort of uh, standard way of approaching bukla and and a lot of a lot of music that is made on the bukla and maybe where the bukla is part of the music's identity kind of has a similarity between it, which kind of gets a little, it can get sonically fatiguing, mm-hmm. but do you think that we'll reach a point? So, you know, you and I and, and Kyle are from like the, I think I can't remember how many waves I counted for bukla, but coming in around 2017, 2018. And I, I kind of want to reject the, the sound of the tim- the timbre knob sweep on a 261 you know yeah. like i get fatigued but but at a certain point people will say man nothing sounds like a bukla anymore and they'll want to return to that yeah. you know 1973 sound the sound of the 259 you know will drift away from the identity of the of the instrument and then people want to come back to that. Well, we'll always be able to do that, but it's kind of a, that, that's sort of how music, these cycles in music work. You know, we want to reject what is established because it's, it gets, we want to do something different and it sounds, we're so accustomed to these common, for lack of a better term, timbres. Totally. And then we reject those and then we're like, wow, we got to get back to that because yep. that's what got us into this in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. Like filter sweeps. Right, right. Um, yeah, and I, I think it's like, you know, there's kind of like a thing the instrument wants to do um, and that it's it's kind of well set up to do. 
Um, and I, I think it's an interesting exercise to intentionally reject a lot of those things um, because it just makes you learn the instrument better uh, and learn capabilities and possibilities that maybe you didn't realize were there at first. Um, but I mean, I think it's all good. Like there's, there's so many different ways to approach it and that's what makes it such a fantastic instrument. Uh, but when I'm playing it, and I think when I approach any instrument, uh, the ultimate goal is for the instrument itself to kind of disappear, you know, in a way. And I, I, I try to get to that point where like, I just sort of forget about the instrument and I'm just focused on the music. And um, I think for me personally, getting to that point is easier when you're not kind of falling into all the traditional tropes of what the instrument's supposed to do, you know? Mm. Yeah. And there are some default things that the instrument does. Yeah. You know, I think anybody who turns on a, a 261E will use a, the modulation oscillator as an LFO to sweep that timbre knob. You know, we, we all have, we all start there. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, totally. But I, I, you know, I think the really remarkable thing about it as an instrument is the range of articulations you can get from a single voice is, in my personal opinion, unparalleled. Um, and, and the quality of those articulations, you know, it it, it can feel like a straight like a violin or a cello, you know with this huge range of like, now I'm just gonna tap on the strings and then I'm gonna bow in this way and I'm gonna bow very aggressively. And you can get that whole range of timbres from a single voice, which, and it all sounds good, which I think is its greatest strength. Um, and uh, it's what makes it a really special instrument. So something else I was interested in was trying to get the most out of a single voice in, in every context, you know? This was all kind of one patch throughout the, most of the album, right? It it evolved um, a little bit, but mm -hmm. yeah, ninety percent of it is eighty percent of a similar patch. You know, if that makes sense. <laughs> um, there's kind of like certain basic ideas that are um, flowing through the whole thing. Like the voice structure is pretty much the same, and. There would be some different changes to how I would use the 250 and the 251 from track to track, but um, those are the only sequencers used on the record. Um, and actually the only, there's one sound on the record that I actually played on the 223E, everything else is 250 and 251 uh, articulating the notes. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. I'm like trying to think. I feel like there's like definitely there would have been some points where you're maybe uh, actively playing like on the T twenty three. So no, and th that was actually an important. That's great. That was an important, I guess, philosophical conceptual idea behind the record was, um, you know, the the a lot of the ideas in the record are about world's fairs and um, you know this this kind of like optimistic view of technology that existed. 75 years ago mm -hmm. um and so i wanted the synthesizer to compose the entire record i didn't want to choose any notes there's there's one moment i won't tell you when but there's one part on the record that i actually played um and everything else is composed by the bukla wow so man you're really getting the most out of those uh how many steps are on the 251 49 <laughs> 
<laughs> 49. It, it used to go to 99. Yeah. And then when they shipped it, it was reduced to 49. And there's some different theories about that that have, <laughs> I don't think have been confirmed. Yeah. But so it's basically, you know, it, it's a hundred step or, you know, like a, the originally was four, nine, you know, 100 step because it's zero to 99. So right, it's right, 100. Right. And zero right. to 49 is 50. Yeah. So it went from 400 steps to just 200. And I don't know how we're going to get by with just 200 steps, but <laughs> some. <laughs> well, Johnny, Johnny's doing it just fine. Yeah. They're actually, there's, and there's stages, Johnny, not steps. Oh, correct. Correct. So, yeah. Yeah. Right. I, I should know better. Because, it, it's, you know, the, um, a long time ago, Ezra Buchla was talking about the 251E not long after it came out, and there's this great discussion about it, how it is a sequential voltage source, and each voltage source is set as a stage, and it, it's, not a, it, it's not a sequencer that's too limiting. It can do sequencing, but when I, we look at it as a sequencer, it's, that's too much of a limitation. I agree 100%. I uh, yeah. When you use it, you kind of get that. Totally. And it's, mm -hmm. it's just the coolest, the coolest thing I've ever encountered in, in terms of synthesizers. I, I can't think of anything that for me was like more groundbreaking than the first time I turned on the 251E and I was like, oh, it can what? <laughs> like it can do and it can what? Yeah. <laughs> There's just so many ways to use it. Um, and uh, I just love it. I just love it. It's probably my favorite module. Like if I had a four space system, I would still have my 251E yes. and I'll never ever give mine up because it has the yellow LCDs and um, I don't like the green ones. So <laughs> like, oh, yeah. it looks like a, it, yeah, it just looks, it's just such an amazing, and you, you have to spend so much time with it to kind of really understand what it's capable of. Totally. And, you know, then build up the muscle memory as you jump between things and yes. figure out how to set intervals for the notes that aren't, you know, quarter note, half note, eighth note, sixteenth note. You can get like a 51st note yeah. if you want. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. I can't wait to. So we'll we'll do a show on the 251E once COVID is over and Kyle can come over because that's one that we definitely need to do at the same time. So tell me about, I'm really fascinated by this. Uh, tell me about your, I'm going to call it interesting living situation and your solar powered studio. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Well, um, about a year and a half ago, I guess now, um, my, well, my, my wife and I, we moved into an earth ship. Um, it happened very suddenly. We just, we, I was at work one day and I just was zooming around the internet, looking at houses for fun. And I found one for a very affordable price in New Mexico. Um, I called my wife and I was like, should we move to New Mexico? There's this really cheap earth ship for sale. And she said, yes. Uh, so we did. And, um, and so we've been and there. Explain about like what are, if people don't know what an earth ship is like explain. Yeah. I guess the basic tenants. Of it. So it's, it's a fully off grid house. Um, that's built to be basically as efficient and sustainable as possible. So it uses all of the systems of nature to their greatest benefit. Um, so like one of the most interesting things is like it's built so that in the summer, the sun never actually hits the floor of the house. 
But in the winter, when the sun's at a lower angle, the sun does hit the floor of the house. So it heats in the winter and it doesn't heat in the summer. Um, it's also, it's, it's built underground. So the back of the house is all bedrock. Um, and uh, the floor of the house is all bedrock. So, you know, that has some great thermal qualities as well. And um, we collect rainwater. Uh, we have no well or no septic system. Um, it's all solar powered. It's, uh, there's, there's garden beds kind of integrated into the water cycling of the house. Um, so there's all these planters that kind of line the house that all our gray water goes through. And we have trees and plants in those. Um, so it's just meant to be like as sustainable as possible. Um, and it's not a convenient house to live in, but it's kind of amazing. So, you know, we're really into it. We're in, out in the middle of nowhere. Um, and for us, it's just perfect. Does it have like tires at the back of it? Is yes. that still part of yep. a lot of that? Yeah. Part, part of the building ethos is that it should be as recycled as possible. So tires are a very challenging thing to recycle. So they insulate the house entirely with tires. And does it have a greenhouse kind of section at the front? Yes. Or like where it's yep. separate? Yeah. Yep. Uh, it's not separate. It's just part of the living room. Um, but it's pretty cool to have a banana tree in your living room. Um, you know, <laughs> and then there's in the, in the, there's one in the bathroom, in the bathroom, there's one too. And we, we grow tomatoes there and that kind of freaks it, people out when we have guests that we're growing tomatoes in our bathroom, but <laughs> they taste good to us. <laughs> so how is, uh, how does your kind of studio setup fall into the airship? Yeah, it was it was actually something I was very nervous about because um, I'd never lived on solar power before. Um, and so we, we bought the house, but we didn't move in for another four months after we bought it. Um, uh, and that whole time I was like trying to find information on people who had solar powered studios. And um, I w wasn't really getting, everything I was getting was like, well, you better have a laptop and use a shitty USB audio interface and blah, blah, blah. And meanwhile, I'm here with my wired 300 and my Buchla and my like, I have like a tube mixer that I record things through and like really high powered converters. And I was like measuring the power draw. And I was like, like, this is not going to work. <laughs> then we moved in and, and yeah. everything works totally fine. Like it's, it's not a problem at all. Um, and uh, in, you know, it, it changes seasonally. Um, and that's one of the things that's, interesting about living here is you don't necessarily get to wake up every day and decide what you're going to do like the the environment has some input on this you know the other day when i was i was finishing my artist profile mixes i i messaged you kyle and i was like oh it's not going to happen today because it's cloudy um and that's part of it <laughs> but that to me is actually like a really great way to live like if i if i wake up and it's snowing well, I can't make music today, you know? Um, and mm -hmm. I kind of like that. And in the winter, we don't get so much power, obviously, for, for very clear reasons. Um, and so in the winter, I can't mm -hmm. really play the synths so much, but I can think about synths and I can, you know, this last winter, I, I wrote down a ton of notes for patches, which is, I always start my patches with pen and paper, which... I don't think it's very common, but that's that's how I always start. Um, 
And so I just kind of started filling notebooks with all these patch ideas and song ideas because I just couldn't turn on my synths, um, or at least not for any significant amount of time. And so then when the days start getting longer, it's like, all right, let's go, you know? And then you power everything up. And mm-hmm. in the summer, I can I can run the studio pretty much 24 hours a day, um, which was a surprise to me, uh, again, because I have some pretty high-voltage equipment. Um, but... Yeah. It, it ebbs and flows, which is kind of refreshing, to be honest. Yeah. I, I, in a way, that makes sense why the, the music's so optimistic, because you're like, I'm finally getting to do it. Yeah, totally. Because <laughs> you've been waiting all winter. And that's yeah. why your your BPMs are so high, because you have very limited time to finish the track. So <laughs> exactly. try to make it as fast as it could go. <laughs> that's very true. That's very true. <laughs> But yeah, I loved seeing that message come in of just like, yeah, I just don't, you know, not enough sun right now to get the that file over to yeah. you. It's just like, I don't hear that very often and it's very charming. Yeah. Uh, I loved it. Um, and I, I guess, yeah, it, it, that is such a cool way to live to, I mean, I guess you just have to be um, more present with what's going on around you. I, I feel like most of my time is like stuck in this 100 foot square foot room where I work and make music and, you know, only look out the window every once in a while. So I have no idea what's going on. And, and so, and yeah, never leave the house. So uh, it sounds nice. It's, it's somehow, extremely even nice. Though it's limiting. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. 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 There's no, no complaints here. Um, and it's a lot of work, you know, but um, it's fun work for the most part, you know, uh, mm-hmm. de- dealing with the toilet is not my favorite thing, but it's, you know, it's what, it's what it takes to live here yeah, in the way that we do. And it's so everything's kind of worth it. Yeah. New Mexico's gorgeous too. I mean, even the, like the Southeast, which is, you know, the, the high desert is still really pretty in its own way. Totally. Bigger like Hobbs, you know, and Carlsbad, that kind of thing. Yep. Yep. Yeah, I've, I've been to Taos. I've been to Santa Fe. I grew up in Texas and we had relatives that lived in New Mexico. And it was so crazy to drive across the oil fields of West Texas, which tumbleweeds and roadrunners and horny toads. You're like, this is awful. And you get into New Mexico and you're driving a little while longer. And then you get to like the mountain range. Holy moly, man. Yep. <laughs> a whole other world. Yeah, totally. <laughs> Totally. I know everybody always thinks we live in the desert, um, but you know we live in a like really lush pine forest in the mountains. Um, but it's funny; everybody just always assumes like we live in like white sands or something. <laughs> yeah. You know, Albuquerque. Yeah, and they see pictures and they're like, "What? What?" <laughs> or like it's just it's basically just Southern Colorado, you know. Yeah, so it's not like uh, Breaking Bad and The Man Who Fell to Earth, <laughs> no, which both take place in Albuquerque. And it's yeah. dusty all the time. <laughs> not at all. Not at all. Thank God, too. <laughs> now the the people who listen to the show from Albuquerque are like, I'm not listening to this ever again. Mm-hmm. You, you've lost. You've lost an Albuquerque. Yeah. I won't be playing any shows there anytime soon, anyway. So I guess that's okay. <laughs> um. <laughs> You have been, though, you've been posting a lot uh, of live performances outside on your on your property. So I feel like, you know, we're able to go to shows 
and see totally you. yeah yeah that was kind of the you know i i just finished this record and i was like you know i i, I played in bands all through my teens and 20s and um n- never very successful ones um but uh um well not for music at least and um and that's just kind of what you do, right? You finish an album and then you're like, well, let's go play some shows and get the word out and get people excited about the albums coming mm-hmm. out. And I was like, well, we can't do that for COVID reasons. Um, so that was kind of why I started doing that. Uh, also just to figure out like, how would I play live? Cause I'm, I can't play these songs, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, <laughs> uh, so what am I going to do if I play live? So it was, it was partially trying to figure that out and also partially trying to, you know, let people know that I'm a guy who plays the bukla and I have an album coming out. <laughs> well, job, job well done. Thank you. Thank I'm just you. a guy playing the bukla, waiting for an album to come out. <laughs> yeah. Riding around in my earth ship. Totally. Yeah. Well, and it's fine. I was talking to Evan, uh, you know, who runs the label and I was like, I see all these videos of people who like go to these national parks and play their modular synths. So that seems to be like this popular trope right now. And I was like, I, I live in that place, so I just I just run an extension cord from the house. <laughs> I get I get all these comments that are like, Oh my god, you carried a tape echo all the way up to the mountain. And I'm like, I'm like 15 <laughs> feet from my front door. But <laughs> like with the with the Sherpa yeah. carrying your 18U <laughs> on his back. I know. I should have had my <laughs> dog little poles, yeah. you know. I should have just tied my dogs up to like a wagon just for the effect. That would have been a in retrospect, that probably would have been better. <laughs> You know, just like put up a tent on the side. Totally. Make it look like you're. <laughs> yeah. Got to this place. So I guess uh, before we end it, I want to hear a bit about, because you've got this whole other a long history in like video production and animation. And so yeah. can you tell us a bit about what you're up to in that now? Well, I can't talk about what I'm doing right now, um, but uh <laughs> I, I guess maybe is this is the synth related part of that the most interesting probably for people. Um, I mean, I guess to to go back, like I, I graduated college in two thousand one, and I was like, I, those of you who remember, that was I, I thought I was I wanted to go into the music industry. I wanted to be a mixing engineer specifically and do studio stuff. Um, mm-hmm. But that was when the music industry just imploded like almost overnight because of Napster and all that stuff. So the entire music industry was crumbling and I was like, I should probably learn how to do something else. So um, I got into video and animation um, and that became my career and it's been awesome and I love it. And it's a nice compliment to music um, because it exercises like a different part of my brain um, but people who work in animation and, and VFX especially will know that a lot of the software is inherently modular. So that was also something I gravitated towards right away because I was like, oh, cool. It's a modular for pictures and sculpting and all, all this other mm-hmm. stuff. Um, so it felt really comfortable to me and it's it's been a fantastic career. And, um, and then I, I guess around 2008, nine maybe, was when I started finding out about video synthesizers. And that became, for a few years there, that was really like the 
kind of bedrock of my career was working with video synthesizers, which was extremely cool um, and something I still enjoy doing. Uh, although there's, you know, limited yeah. commercial applications, but I, I feel like I tried to stretch them <laughs> as far as I could. We got a, you know, I, I did like a mm -hmm. MTV promo network ID that had video synths in it and um, did a bunch of stuff for Adult Swim and um, uh, other cool, nice. you know, just, just doing as much as I could with the video sense. But it, yeah. Yeah. And it, it, uh, brought me a lot of joy and continues to. And so I know you can't talk about it, but is it, is the, are the video sense kind of still part of what you're going to be doing on this new project or no, it's, it's been harder and harder. I, I feel like video synth there was, I mean, there's people doing really amazing stuff with it still, but there was that like chill wave mm -hmm. moment where it was kind of like part of the uh, this really popular aesthetic in music, um, and mm -hmm. you know, it's the unfortunate thing about the music industry is it's very trend based and very, you know, they, these things kind of come and go and they cycle. I'm waiting for like video synths to get big again because I know they will at some point, um, and people will start asking for it. Yeah. But there was kind of that like chill wave moment um that I, I capitalized on i guess but uh, also just i loved the music um and it was fun but there were a lot of people into that kind of you know analog video vibe at that moment i have critter critter and guitari video i'm not sense well you know what they are yeah i've got two of two of them the old one that i've the name of which i have forgotten and the new one the name of which i have also forgotten <laughs> and um i like to I like to use those when I'm composing on the Bukla just to sort of see a dimension, uh, you know, of the music that I don't have in my mind. Totally. Um, they're, they're kind of unpredictable and which is really neat. And uh, I love that because it, a long time ago when I lived in Austin in the nineties, which was the absolute best time to live there. Yeah. I went to this um, Dallas video festival back when old VHS tapes were just, you had to be, you had to know somebody to be able to get these videos that are now on YouTube. And there was a guy there who had this all in one, um, TV and VHS player VCR. It was like a 13 inch and he had made, um, it, images, visuals like an Amiga with the video toaster yeah, with music that he had written. And that was just the most amazing thing to see and hear about because you know seeing the imagery but then also hearing about how he made it was part of the art yep. because of the just the enormous amount of labor he put into <laughs> put into that because he didn't record it on a normal vcr you know he had to use vtr and all that stuff yeah and then now it's so so easy to do that but i think about that when i'm messing around the critter and guitar stuff because it's like he he had to have this imagery in his mind of what he wanted to do and writing the music for it. And then I'm getting, I'm doing the opposite here. And then it changes the way I think about my own music because I'm seeing it visualized. Oh, totally. It's really, really, really a total dimension that I think so many people are missing out on. Yeah. And I think it's, uh, it's funny. Cause I have like, you know, I, I do, well, I don't know if you do know this, but I do like all the demo videos for LZX industries who make the video sense. And yeah. so I have like, all of the LZX modules here, um, but it's I I can't focus on both at the same time. 
you know, like I can do the video synth or I can do the Buchla, but whenever I try to do them both, they actually both end up suffering. Like I can't, I can't do a good video patch and a good audio patch at the same time and perform them both the way they need to, which I wish I could, but I'm just not, not that talented, I guess. But, but, uh, yeah, one of these days I'll, I'll figure out how to get the video synth involved again. It's uh, I, I enjoy video editing also just as sort of a side hobby. I, I'm oh, yeah. not very good at it, but I enjoy the, um, that really, really, this is another thing that you have to do it. I mean, I know you're, you're into this, but when you're editing video, there's that crazy combination of extreme technical tool stuff and then creativity, mm-hmm. you know, and they, the pendulum swings between them because you're making creative decisions as an editor. And then you have to know the tools and the techniques and stuff really well to be able to do it. Totally. And so that as a, as a software developer, you know, that, that aspect appeals to me. So I like to edit video just for fun. Which is I, really weird. Me too. I love, I mean, I, a lot of my day work is uh, editing based. Uh, I was actually working on editing, mostly editing jobs for the whole time I was doing pavilions, but I think you bring up a good point, and just to, to get it back to the bookla too, is I've always gravitated towards things that are like enormously technically complex and also require creativity. And um, you know, the first two years I had the bookla, I couldn't compose anything on it because I didn't have like the you have to get to that point where the technical side of everything just disappears and becomes like yeah. not something you have to think about anymore. And so like with video editing, it took me years and years to get to the point where now I can do it blindfolded. You know, I don't, I don't even have to think mm-hmm. about where the buttons are or what I'm doing technically. And so you could just kind of hone in on the creative stuff. And I felt like with the Buchla, it required that same level of technical investment um, before I could really feel like I was making music with it. It felt like I was just struggling with where does this go? How does this work? Can this trigger that? No. You know, you like all figuring all those little things out um, takes a really long time. But then once that all disappears is when you can start actually having fun. Yeah. It's fun. You know, it's to your point when I'm starting, when I started out with Premiere, switching between the, the arrow and the razor, you know, yeah. the, the keys to do that. <laughs> I had to keep, I had to keep looking that up Yeah, <laughs> because I, I'd forget, you know? Mm-hmm. And so can you imagine doing that now? But with all the the creative energy that I have for this stuff, and it's still fun now to try to figure out how to split and join. But after a while, you know, it can become an impediment to the creativity because you keep fumbling with the tools. So you're right. I think you're really spot on. The 251E is a really good example of that. Totally. With its learning curve at the beginning, it can be really fun to figure out how to, you know, repeat a stage. But later, when you're deep into the composing aspect, it's not the it's not the mechanics of looping five stages that you're really into. It's you know you just want it to you just want it to happen. Yep, yep. And then when there is something new to learn in the module, that can be really fun. But it needs to be evolutionary rather than always having to go back to the basics of how to use the tool. That's a good point. Yeah, I guess there's like a there's a delicate balance there too, right? It's to what you're trying to get from it. Yeah, I, I always think there's like, there's plateaus and there's peaks and you're, you you climb, right? And by climbing, I mean like you're learning new technical skills and then you kind of like chill out on a plateau for a while 
and um, use what you've learned to kind of play around and do stuff. And then at some point you start climbing again and you get on to the next, you know, like the next sequence of, of learning and further technical um, uh, virtuosity. And then you chill out on a plateau for a while again. And um, that's the way I've always thought of it. So pavilions was like my last plateau. And now I'm trying to learn some different ways to use the instrument. And um, that's going to be the next record, I hope. Yeah. Sweet. I'm looking forward to it. Thank you, buddy. Yeah, me too. I'm looking forward to you guys' new records. I, yeah, I mean, every episode I'm like, yeah, I'm working on it. You know, if, if you go back to the very first episode of the show, yeah, I'm working on this new album. <laughs> Are you still working I've, on a black metal um, black metal album? I I am. The, the reason, yeah, yes. I've been actively working on that. But the problem with working on it is that I can't go to any shows and I can't go to you know, hang out with the people that are in that scene. I can't go down to Portland and go to the folks, you know, like all of the, the, the stimuli that mm-hmm. goes toward making that kind of music for me is, is cut off for now. Yeah. And so kind of sitting here in my office wearing basketball shorts and a white t-shirt and <laughs> trying to, you know, make some, and then send it to somebody instead of playing it for them on their, on a system, on a stereo system. It just right. isn't really lining up for me yet because there's yeah. such a it's more than just the composition there's like a an ethos around it that's missing modular nights when we were doing that really helped because we go hear noise artists here in seattle like some really crazy industrial noise and um power electronics and stuff and that's inspiring because i hear these things i think oh man that would be really really cool to have something like that here you know in my own my own piece but i'm not getting that right now yeah. So, yeah, I'm kind of slow. Well, I look but forward. I've, I've been spending a lot of time on computer composing, like nice. um, drag and drop in a DAW t- to see, you know, I took this class, this Andrew Wong class, which was really fun to make electronic dance music, which I'm not into at all. Right. <laughs> so I thought, I'm going to learn something new that I don't like and see what it's what influences and inspires yeah and so the mechanics of building tracks or producing tracks in a daw actually was quite inspiring to think about things like how to lay down drums and then make them sound more human you know through probability right Right. which i never would have explored that ever i didn't even really think about that so it's kind of that's what i've been wrapped up in nice it's my worst nightmare doing anything on a DAW. <laughs> it, it's, it's, it's just like the video, <laughs> right? Editing, yeah. right? If, if you're looking at it as here is a composition tool to explore and oh, you yeah. might throw it out because you don't like playing the violin, but you want to learn about pizzicato and you want to learn about, you know, um, endless envelopes, which is what a violin's famous for, then it, it's cool to do that. But if you don't want violin in your music, you definitely don't have to. You know what I mean? Oh, it's it's absolutely. like learning a tool yeah. to see what it's going to teach you. Yeah. And I think that's actually why I d- despise it so much. Because I, I open Pro Tools. And like Pro Tools is like, I, like I open After Effects or Premiere or Maya. And I'm just like, I know everything to do and how to, you know, it's just super fast. And I open Pro Tools and I'm like, I kind of know how to cut things. But like, I don't, <laughs> you know, I don't invest the time to get the technical proficiency and I, I don't really <laughs> I'd rather spend the time with the synthesizers. So 
I get to Pro Tools and I just feel like my hands are duct taped together and I'm just struggling, trying to do every little yeah. thing. So it's that's why I do everything live. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've never touched Pro Tools. Even the word the word Pro in it is a kind of a turn off. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like because I'm not a pro. Yeah, and it and it's a tool, and that's so boring. <laughs> you know, think about Logic and Studio One and Cubase. You know, or yeah. Bitwig. Like they have these little bit of a fanciful name to them. Final Cut, <laughs> New Window. <laughs> <laughs> all right so tell us where uh where we can find your music and um yeah anywhere else you want to lead listeners to uh Bandcamp is the the best place to find my music um pavilions we we still have vinyl and cassettes left uh as well as digital um so that's out now and uh you can also listen on Spotify and Apple Music and all the streamy, all the streamy things. But um, if if you buy a vinyl or a cassette, my label would appreciate it very much, and they are wonderful people. <laughs> so it's it's uh, they're they're great to support. Um, yeah, it's behind the sky music is the label, and you should check out all their stuff because it's just wonderful. Well, cool. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you guys for having me. This is this is the first time I've used my mouth to talk about synthesizers in probably a year. So I really appreciate the opportunity. <laughs> Anytime. Yeah. We'd like to thank Johnny for being on the show today. Be sure to check out his new album, Pavilions, at johnnywoods.bandcamp.com, and please buy it. Check out our friend Tim Held's podcast, The Padre Modcast, as well as Ben Wilson and Ed Ball's Esoteric Modulation podcast. Also, our buddy Jay Ryan has a new podcast called The Deerhorn, which focuses on Seat Lombard instruments. Very, very cool. Look forward to that. Check out uh, waveformmagazine.com for some details on how you can subscribe to the quarterly synthesizer-related magazine. And if you want to help support the show, you can do so through Patreon at patreon.com slash Source of Uncertainty. And you can get your Source of Uncertainty t-shirts from sourceofuncertainty.threadless.com. That's a lot of uncertainty. You can find out more about the show or contact us through our website, sourceofuncertainty.audio. We'd love to hear from you. And find us on Instagram at Source of Uncertainty and on YouTube. We'll see you next time.